I'm Audrey Cooper, the editor-in-chief of the San Francisco Chronicle, and today I'm going to talk to Otis Taylor Jr. He's one of our columnists and has been writing some disturbing columns about the city of Vallejo. Specifically, Otis has been investigating the police department there because in recent months, officers have killed three young men of color in questionable shootings. We talk about how Otis got interested in Vallejo, what it has to do with the history of police abuse in Oakland, and how he stays safe while reporting these stories. That's today on Fifth Emission. Otis Taylor Jr., welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. So you're on to talk to us about your reporting in the city of Vallejo, which has been really pretty shocking, I mean, to me, over the last couple of years. You know, normally you're the East Bay columnist. Vallejo's, I guess, technically the East Bay, yeah, but it's yeah. stretching it. So how did you become interested in Vallejo? Okay, so Vallejo is a waterfront city in Solano County. Technically, it's in the North Bay, but it's in the inner Northeast Bay, if that makes sense. It's up there by Benicia, past Richmond. But it's only about 30 miles north of Oakland. And one thing that I like about Vallejo, I find fascinating about Vallejo, it's it's rare that you have you know, similar amounts of black, white, Asian, and Hispanic people living in the same area. But the thing about Vallejo is that the stubborn racial divisions remain and so do achievement gaps, particularly for people of color. And I've realized that racial groups stick to their own. I first became aware of Vallejo, I'd say less than a year into my tenure as the East Bay columnist, when in March of 2017, uh, Dewan Hall had an interaction with a police officer. That interaction was recorded by bystanders and it went viral. It went viral because of the viciousness with which that the officer attacked Hall with uh, what appears to be a flashlight. But then the officer who was beating Hall pointed his service weapon at bystanders who were video recording it. But why I really got interested, because uh, unfortunately in this day and age, it's not really all that surprising or shocking to see a person of color being brutalized by a police officer. Why I was really interested in it was it was apparent that nothing was going to have happen to the officer, that the officer wasn't going to be disciplined for such a public display of brutality. What happened to that officer? Uh, nothing. Uh, it was the chief was going to review, which becomes, um, in the two years since reporting on Vallejo, it's become um, the statement, which essentially means, you know, we're not going to do anything, stop asking questions, is the chief is reviewing this incident and we'll let you know what the chief decides. You respond to that um, months later, will the chief decide? Just crickets, nothing. Um, Vallejo just, I have dealt with a lot of politicians in my career who have animosity towards me or other journalists. Most of them will respond back. Vallejo just doesn't care to even respond, but then they'll complain about what's published and well, why didn't you respond? Because, you know, now I get the answer that it's fake news. 
Oh, I, I've heard that before. Well, we're going to talk about um, the difficulties in your reporting, but I want to get back to like the string of all of these mm-hmm. really horrifying incidents that have happened in Vallejo. So after the beating of Dwan Hall, mm-hmm. you also covered the death of Angel Ramos. Tell us about what happened in that case. Sure. So after, uh, while reporting on Dwan Hall, I was introduced to Cindy Mitchell, whose brother, Mario Romero, was shot and killed during an encounter with Vallejo police officers in September of 2012. The police thought his car matched the one that had been used in the shooting about a month earlier. Mario Romero was sitting in his car with a friend at about 4.30 in the morning. It was a weekend. He was going to start a new job on Monday. Police say Romero stepped out of the car with a gun. And police unloaded 30 bullets into his body. But what police found was a pellet gun, and it was lodged behind the driver's seat. So if that's true, that Romero stepped out of the car with a pellet gun at police, and then as he was being repeatedly shot, he somehow got back into the car and had the presence of mind to hide the gun behind the seat, I just found that very unbelievable. The family wasn't allowed to see Romero's body for a month, and the department uh, updated the media more than it did the family. So I had Dewan Hall, and through Dewan Hall, reporting on Dewan Hall, I met Cindy Mitchell, who was Mario Romero's brother. And by then, I was very interested in what was happening in Vallejo. So after I reported on Dewan Hall and Cindy Mitchell, she told me to get in touch with Angel Ramos's family. Angel Ramos was shot and killed by Vallejo police in January of 2017 in his own home. According to police, Ramos was standing over a young man, a minor, in a threatening manner with a knife. And police feared that Ramos had put the minor's life in jeopardy. So this was in his own house? Yeah. Inside the house? Yes, it was inside the house. There had been a party and Angel Ramos was sleeping, was sleeping in his room when his brother's girlfriend came to wake him up. So Ramos could be a peacemaker in a fight that was happening. He was not part of the drinking, of the smoking of the weed. He was in his bed sleeping. And he got up. He was in his boxers, and he tried to be a peacemaker. Yes, at one time he did grab an object, uh, his family admits, but that was when he was in the kitchen. When police happened on the scene, Ramos was on the back deck, a poorly lit back deck at that. So I find it... Very hard for a police officer from the ground to be seeing what's happening above, uh, probably six or seven feet above them, dimly lit, and then to make the determination that he was threatening uh, the the minor. But I talked to the minor and two other fight participants who said that Ramos was not in possession of a knife when he was shot and killed in the back by Vallejo police officers. And what's happening with the investigation into that that shooting? Well, the Solano County District Attorney declined to press charges against the police officer, which it's very hard in this in this country um, to for an officer to be charged, let alone um, found responsible for his actions. And I thought in that case that, that 
the charges should have been brought. But the most egregious about that case was after the Ramos family started marching the streets, until then, there hadn't been many protests. It's not Oakland. It's far enough from Oakland that you don't have the activists who will be in the streets or at every city council meeting. Also, it's, it's a working class city. People are at work during the day. I mean, <laughs> and they're probably commuting really far. That's one of the reasons Vallejo has mm-hmm. changed so much. So it's, it's a lot different of a community than yes. the inner Bay Area. Yes. And so you don't have people gathering like they do in Oakland, San Francisco. But the Ramos family claims they were intimidated by the police. Uh, His sister said uh, she was out at a nightclub and a man approached her and said, I know what you're doing, so stop what you're doing. This family said that uh, where they live on Sacramento Street, which is a main road in, in Vallejo, officers will drive by and shine their spotlights into their windows and then they would play the, um, would turn up the speakers and, and just be barking commands to no one in particular all hours of the night because the Ramos family, two years later, they haven't let it go. They are at every city council meeting right now to, I don't know, to just try to get some sort of feeling out of the city council members who have been reticent to even say the police department has a problem. And they're being represented by John Burris, who's an Oakland-based civil rights attorney who's very well known for taking on these um, allegations of uh, officer misconduct and inappropriate officer shootings. Mm -hmm. And you were telling me before, he's from Vallejo, so mm -hmm. Burris has an interest in these cases too. Mm -hmm. So that was... Angel Ramos, but then there were two more. Yes, so Ronell Foster, father of two, a black man, was riding his bike in February of 2018 when an officer, um, according to the statement he gave to investigators after the shooting, wanted to educate Foster about riding his bike without bike lights. What ended up, Foster was spooked and ran from the officer. The officer chased him down a dark alley, and there was a struggle. The officer claims that Foster took control of his flashlight and was raising it in a threatening manner that made him fear for his life. Well, when the officer's body cam video was released, that's not what we saw. What I saw was a terrified man asking an officer what he was doing. Why? I saw a man trying to run from an officer and not raising a flashlight in a threatening manner. Ronell Foster was shot several times, including in the back, side, and in the back of his head, which suggests he wasn't trying to charge the officer. He was, in fact, trying to get away from the officer. That happened in 2018, and it took uh, the police department a year to release that body cam video. And then less than a year later, uh, February 2019, Willie McCoy was shot and killed by Vallejo police officers in a drive-through of a Taco Bell. And uh, of note of that is the same officer who shot Ronald Foster, Ryan McMahon, was also one of the six officers that shot Willie McCoy. So this is... um a very serious beating and three fatal police-involved shootings mm-hmm. of young men of color mm-hmm. over, 
you know, basically two years. Yeah. Is that, you know, it's, it's not unusual to have police officers shoot people and kill them. Is that an unusual number for a city the size of Alejo? Yes, it's, it's alarmingly unusual. And this is why um, I've spent a lot of time in, in Vallejo, sometimes multiple days a week. I'll drive up there and just spend time getting to know uh, people in the city. Willie McCoy was the 16th death involving Vallejo police officers since 2011, according to police records. In that same period, San Francisco, which has a population roughly seven times as large as Vallejo, there have been 22 deaths. Do the math there. That is an alarmingly high rate of police shootings. So I think this is a good point to explain how you're different in the newsroom than a traditional reporter. So you're hired to be a columnist, but you're Mm -hmm. out there reporting and gathering facts. Like, so explain to everybody, what is the difference between you Mm -hmm. and a reporter who might cover the breaking news aspect of these shootings? Mm -hmm. So I believe my difference is, is I'm supposed to take a more detailed and in-depth look at an issue. For instance, when William McCoy was shot, um, breaking news reporters, it was about, okay, let me give you the facts of the incidents. And um, and then part of that is police statements and either statements from witnesses. What I do is try to take a step back and, and see um, a form of a, opinion on, on the event. But my opinion is based on further reporting. Reporting that takes days and sometimes weeks. Um, It's not the same as breaking news where it's just let me get the story. um, Let me disseminate the information as fast as possible. I get to take my time and do a little bit more, I call it investigating of of an issue. But I want to point out that um, yes, I am uh, an opinion columnist, but I rarely, if ever, will write a column without interviewing people and building an argument that is supported by data and it's supported by um, informed people who have knowledge about the subject I'm writing about. I always explain it to people that it's fact-based commentary. You don't just give your opinions, but you have to actually report it. And through that reporting, you're allowed to present your unique point of view on this. Mm -hmm. So what has been the response from the police department of Vallejo and the police officers union? Mm -hmm. So I have not had much interaction at all with either. In fact, uh, the police officers uh, association won't return my calls, but instead they'll mock my reporting on social media without saying that there's anything wrong with the reporting. Uh, The police have told me that they are not going to give interviews because they don't think they'll get a fair shake with my reporting. And again, I say, what have I reported that's been wrong? I haven't had a correction, but please tell me what is wrong. What do you dispute? Um, It doesn't stop me from asking every single story that I, I report. I will first go to the police, and if they don't respond, then I'll start bugging city council members and um, board of supervisors. And after I ask enough people for a comment, then um, the police will eventually respond because enough people have asked them. I've told them you better. So I think this is really important because, you know, I was just before we came down to the studio, I was just emailing with a subscriber back and forth. And she said, well, if you know the police are doing something wrong, why don't you tell the police and get them to talk about it? And I said, you know, 
to this is not unique to Vallejo. So many police departments will not talk to you if you present them with that because there's no win in it for them. And they just batten down the hatches. And it can be really difficult for that reason to report on these cases because the documents are often you can't get them because they say they're still under investigation. Mm -hmm. They won't talk to you. Witnesses are often scared or intimidated or um, or afraid that they will suffer that. So these are really hard cases for us to prove whether or not there were abuses of power going on. Yeah, this is. And so what I've been relying on, Audrey, is uh, in a case of intimidation um, in Vallejo by Vallejo officers, uh, something that I'm going to continue reporting on. I have some some columns in the works right now is since, you know, you you can't catch them in act, but then, you know, more and more people each time I report a new incident, will come forward and say, this is happening. So that's what I've had to rely on a lot is, you know, people in Vallejo residents seeing that there are media organizations interested in the truth and who get a sense that there are media organizations who actually want to listen to them. They're starting telling me more and more things. But the sad thing is, is that this could have been I don't know this could be out sooner if if you know, more people trust in the media. Like for instance, the Ramos family, they were so fed up with the media that um, his mom yelled at me for a good ten minutes about, you know, why do you guys not believe us? We've been trying to tell you this has been going on in Vallejo for so long, and now my son is dead. The one thing he was afraid of was dying young, and she let me have it. And I sat there and I was like, so can I? can I take notes now? <laughs> it lightened the mood a little bit, but, um, but yeah, the Vallejo residents have been, have been coming forward since, uh, the Chronicle has been publishing, um, frequent pieces about, um, an aftermath of McCoy's death, particularly when the Chronicle reported on Dayana Jenkins, McCoy's niece getting roughed up by Vallejo police department. And that just, it just people are just fed up with that. How could two people from the same family have something similar happen? And you're getting a lot of sources too, sometimes within the city family, the city government itself too. So I think that's also important for people to know because it's not like we're saying everybody is bad. There are no. people out there who will talk to us, mm-hmm. but they have to go through unauthorized channels in order to get the truth out. And then you have to go and track these down with actual documents that we can mm-hmm. get, which is why these stories take so long and so much energy to do. Why don't you talk to us about the connections between Vallejo and Oakland? Because there are a lot of connections between those, um, you know, troubled police departments. Sure. Uh, many of our our listeners might be aware of the Riders case um, from Oakland, which John Burris did, um, <clears throat> was was an attorney on that case. Uh, well, there was a, essentially a renegade group of Oakland police officers operating in West Oakland. And with renegade, I mean, they would shake down drug dealers. They would pull over people for no reason. They would beat up people for no reason. They were, it was the epitome of lawlessness uh, because they hid behind their badges. Well, once Oakland needed to clean up that, uh, the riders, they fell under federal monitorship, meaning (laughs) you have a judge doing the decision-making for the police department. 
that forced Oakland to clean up a lot of its police officers, meaning it had to let some people go. Well, in my reporting, I found out that there are several Oakland police officers have landed in Vallejo. In fact, a former Oakland captain became the police chief in Vallejo. And that's the chief who's now retired. Yes, he's, he's, his, his name is Nicolini. He brought his son with him, who's still on the force and whose son was involved in the brutal arrest of Carlos Jeskis, uh, a young Latino man, earlier this year. Then you had McLaughlin brothers, um, including Ryan McLaughlin, who was suspended earlier this year for pulling his gun out on a citizen. But Ryan McLaughlin was also involved in the detainment of Adrian Burrell, a black Marine officer who was tackled and handcuffed to his porch just for filming McLaughlin pulling over his cousin in his driveway. Agent Burwell was in his driveway, and he got beat up by a police officer. Agent Burrell is scared to go to his home because of the police in his city. So the chief, he's he's gone, but he's still acting as consultant. So he's collecting his pension and also getting an extra uh, salary from Vallejo still. Is that correct? No. So he was going to do that. But because of uh, scrutiny after Chronicle's reporting, it was found out that there was a hitch in the chief's plan and he hadn't actually served the full 30 years. So he wasn't going to get the pension dollar at that amount. So he had to postpone his retirement by a couple months. So therefore, he's not double dipping. Um, but uh, Vallejo still might try to have him stay on in an interim capacity after his new retirement date, which is May 30th. So he would be at that point. Oh, yes. And it, I think that was um, the goal. But again, I want to say that the chief is part of the problem. Um, you have to understand, you have to remember that this is the chief who allowed his officers to hold a news conference in 2015 to essentially call a kidnap rape victim, Denise Huskins, and her fiancé, or then-fiancé, Aaron Quinn, liars. This woman was kidnapped and raped, and they called her liars. That was so stupid, and it cost city taxpayers $2.5 million. Under Chief Badu, the city has paid out at least $4.5 million to settle um, civil rights and police brutality lawsuits, and there's at least 10 lawsuits pending against the city. I don't understand why Vallejo would want to keep him in charge. So how are they going to find a new police chief? Well, they have hired uh, a recruiting form, but then also they are going to lean on Oakland. Former Oakland police chief Howard Jordan who was in charge before Oakland came under federal monitorship, he is brought in, was brought in recently as a consultant to help find that police chief. What I think city leaders in Vallejo are trying to do is to pacify the growing unrest. But they don't understand that these families that have experienced um, a loved one being fatally shot or a loved one being brutalized, they are congregating. They are talking to each other and they're bringing more and more people into the fold. This is not going to be, uh, uh, hey guys, you know, we'll try better next time. No, there needs to be 
across the board changes, particularly in the police department, for people to be satisfied. So you mentioned there's an unrest in the city. Mm -hmm. What do you say to people who say, well, you know, occasionally a police officer who's under stress will get something wrong and these shootings are horrible, but, you know, we are paying these men and women to make second decisions and we really need to support the police because crime in Vallejo is out of control. What do you say to those people? Well, crime is is still higher than, than police want in Vallejo, but homicides have been dropping and they continued to drop last year. What I would say to someone is what I want from my police officer is I want them to have the utmost training. I want them to be able to figure out what else I can do besides pulling my weapon. In the case of Ron L. Foster, San Francisco and Oakland no longer chase people down dark alleys. They don't even do foot chases. You know, they ride around in the cars, wait for them to come up on their uh, helicopter. That officer could have done anything else besides shooting that man. I want that to happen. Um, That's why I've been writing about AB 392, which is a use of force bill uh, going through the California um, Assembly right now, which would require officers to exhaust every single option before using lethal force. And it would hold officers accountable, like the officer that shot Ron L. Foster, when in an interview he says, I feared for my life, so my instinct was to pull out my weapon, and then I was shooting. Like, that shouldn't be your first instinct. Um, One of the beautiful things about living in the Bay Area is there's just so much history here, and just in Berkeley, the ideals of modern policing were founded in Berkeley by August Vollmer, the first police chief in Berkeley. He demanded that all of his officers have continuing education. He wanted them to all be college graduates. I think we need to return to that model of having our cops being the smartest or some of the most knowledgeable people on the streets most reasonable people. I feel right now we have people who are gung-ho, people who are easily spooked by someone who's very different from them. I think about all the police officers who spent so much time harassing homeless people and arresting them and criminalizing being poor. I just feel that we need to get back to a point where officers are required to be better than average citizens at doing their jobs. So um, for everybody, for anyone who has not seen your picture in the paper and is just <laughs> listening to your voice on this podcast, I think it's important to point out now you are a black man and yes. <laughs> breaking news. Yes. And so I'm curious, you know, you're describing this fear of um, this, this atmosphere of fear in Vallejo mm-hmm. and uh, particularly among men of color. How do you feel going into Vallejo? How do people react to you there when you start asking questions? That's a good question because that's something that my mother uh, worries about. Um, I tell my editor every time I'm going to Vallejo, I let her know that I'm going. And, you know, in case she doesn't hear from me, maybe something happened. I think I'm just doing that out of just this abundance of caution But I do feel it's warranted because I've talked to young men of color. I've talked to older men of color, and they have explained to me how it just seems like their interactions with the police, police are waiting for them to do something. So I don't know if that's the police 
uh, just wanting to have an incident or if the police just have their racial bias and they haven't been trained. But it just feels like the police are 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 amped up like something is going to happen. Um, for instance, Dayana Jenkins, the niece of William Coy, she told me that officers, after they stopped her, told them, oh, we thought you were uh, black dudes in a car. What is that supposed to mean? And then if it were black dudes in a car, what would have happened? You know, I mean, it's police, I really feel, need to understand that when you're dealing with someone who may or may not know their rights, they're allowed to have a conversation with you. It's not all about the control that you get to put over me and my body. Like you have to treat me like a person and I'm not just someone that you can. Yeah. And I, well, actually I'll, I'll stop there. Cause that's what my mother is probably most worried about is that I would try to have a conversation, you know, while I'm complying, just let me have a conversation with you. What, what is it that you want here? What is the what's what's the competition like when you go into Vallejo? And I mean, like, what's what is are there other media that are paying attention to this? Sure. So right now um, there's a Guardian reporter who's up there um, a good bit um, and there's an NBC news reporter. And then um, the Times Herald has one reporter who's focusing on policing. But as far as competition, um no, and that's problematic. Again, that's why residents, um, after two years, are finally uh, residents and sources within the city government are finally trusting me because I, I'm there. Like you can see me when I go out. I, I, when I go up to Vallejo, I usually spend a day there, and you can see me eating lunch on Main Street. You can see me by the water. I mean, I'm I'm very visible. Um, well, I have dreadlocks in my hair, but. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I'm out there, and I'm out there talking to to residents. Um, but that can be kind of scary for some of them. I've had uh, residents who have spoken to me, um, who have called me and been like, "Hey, um, you know, why is someone asking for all communication that I've had with you or had with someone else?" Um, I, I do feel um, that there is an entity in Vallejo who is targeting. Um, residents that have either spoken out against police brutality or have talked to the media about police brutality. So that brings me to Open Vallejo. Yes. What is Open Vallejo? So Open Vallejo calls itself an independent, nonpartisan newsroom um, that's serving public interest. It's a group that's launching later this year, and I'm currently working on a piece right now. They've been kind of secretive um, about who they are because they want their message or they want their work to just be the release of public records. What Open Vallejo does is take – use the law to compel the city of Vallejo to release public records. Open Vallejo is instrumental in getting the Willie McCoy body camera footage released. Why? Because it used uh, the letter of the law after a city councilman – in the town hall admitted to seeing stills of the video. Open Vallejo took that admission and then filed an immediately public uh, records request for the release of the video because if he, this person has seen it – now, that's not something I would have thought of because I, I don't know uh, the law as well as the folks working with Open Vallejo, but um, – 
But there's there's the rub. They are open Vallejo because of these public records requests because releasing that McCoy video caused such a strain on city government because you had national media calling then. Um, wasn't just me and maybe a, another reporter or two. There is someone impersonating open Vallejo right now asking for public records um, using open Vallejo's names, but they're targeting um, – I, a handful of people that I've interviewed. Um, so let me get this straight. There's the white hat open Vallejo people who are trying to use the law to make some of these public documents come out. Yes. And then you think there are also some people who are acting uh, under the guise of open Vallejo to try to get records to mm-hmm. out who is communicating yes. with you from within the city. Yes. Um, that's That's the belief of open Vallejo, which has been very vocal to the city and and publicly on social media about we did not file these requests. Here are 10 requests we did not file. And several of those directly relate to people that you have either interviewed, that I've either either cited, or information that I have requested from city government. I think You know, when you hear things like that, people might understand why we get very paranoid about protecting our sources because Mm -hmm. people want to know who they are, but yet those people are so critical to helping the truth come out and to expose wrongdoing, not just in Vallejo, but anywhere, wherever it occurs. Mm -hmm. So my last question is, what are the chances that you think that the Vallejo Police Department itself will be investigated? I would like to say very high. And the reason I say that is not just because of this series of columns that I'm I'm working on uh, throughout the rest of the year, but because I think someone else is going to die this summer, um, next week. I don't think Vallejo police officers are capable of controlling themselves because they have not been held accountable. And I think someone else is going to die sooner rather than later. So if people want to reach out to you with information about what's going on in Vallejo, how should they do that? Um, first, O Taylor, O-T-A-Y-L-O-R at sfchronicle.com or DM me on Twitter. Uh, my handle is Otis R. Taylor Jr. And we can talk um, privately. I use Signal. You can find me on there too, Otis R. Taylor Jr. Signals an encrypted device that allows things to be kept confidential. And we also have a secure drop. There are instructions on how to securely drop us information and documents into a private server that is also encrypted. So those instructions are on our website, sfchronicle.com. Mm-hmm. Otis, thank you for coming uh, on today to talk about your reporting. Thank you, Audrey. I appreciate it. Thank you to Otis Taylor Jr. for being on the show, and thank you to everybody who's listening. Remember that you can contact us on sfchronicle.com with any tips you have. Fifth and Mission is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. If you like this show, we'd love it if you'd subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've got a minute to give us a quick review, that helps us build our audience so we can keep growing. You can support Fifth and Mission and the newsroom that creates it with a subscription to the San Francisco Chronicle. There are print and digital editions. Find out more at sfchronicle.com slash subscribe.